Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Normal broadcasting has been discontinued. Coming to you from Portland, Oregon. The sports business capital of North America. Keep your radio tuned to this frequency. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Now, your host. I tell you, I've never seen anything like that guy. Brian Berger. Well, thanks for checking out the only show in the country dedicated to covering the business side of sports. Glad you could join us this week. And I'm joined in studio by Nathan Roach. Nathan, we're going guestless this week. More us, no guests. And we've got a uh, potpourri of topics, a mishmash, if you will, of topics to cover everything from British Open ratings, first major of the year without Tiger. We're going to tell you about the Chicago Cubs sale the finalists are down to three, and we're going to talk about the Olympics. They're coming up in just a few weeks. Lots going on with the Olympics, especially as they pertain to the TV coverage, uh, just the environment in China. We'll try and further paint a picture for you as to what China and Beijing specifically will be like in just a few weeks when the Summer Olympics start out. Uh, Welcome back. Well, it's good to be back. It took a, took about a week off. But, you know, the beauty of discussing the business side of sports is there really isn't any offseason. A lot of people talk about this time of year being kind of a lull in sports. The British Open is over, and now it's really kind of just baseball season. But for us, there's a lot going on right now, especially with the Cubs, like you mentioned, and, of course, in its Olympic year. Well, and we can also talk about Brett Favre. Uh, the NFL is investigating potential tampering charges against the Minnesota Vikings. That saga continues to go on and on. And, you know, the NFL season hasn't started, but, boy, they've made lots and lots of headlines in the NBA. Uh, some classmates of Tim Donaghy are going to be doing some prison time, and the Tim Donaghy scandal continues to make headlines. While you were away last week, we talked to Tim Boyle, who is the president and CEO of Columbia Sportswear. That was a fun interview. We've had some great guests over the last month and a half. If you want to ever check out any of those interviews, you can go on to sportsbusinessradio.com and check out the interviews page. It's the tab under the podcast page. So we've got lots and lots of headlines coming up. And then later in the show, as I said, no guests this week. We're going with us, more us, no guests, and just a mishmash of uh, headlines. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. You know the day destroys the night, night divides the day, try to run, try to... This is Brian Berger from Sports Business Radio. I know many of our listeners dream of a job in the sports industry but don't know where to begin. To me, it's an easy call. Go where sports business education got its start, at the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. As the first business school in the country to offer undergraduate and graduate programs, Themed around this multi-billion dollar industry, the Warsaw Center offers a unique blend and strong general business training, sports business curriculum taught by industry experts, and rich out-of-classroom experiences, including real-world consulting projects, study tours, and internships. 
With a strong industry and alumni network and a staff dedicated to accelerating your career, the Warsaw Center has a proven track record of placing students in teams, league offices, corporate sponsors, marketing agencies, sports media, and sports shoe and apparel firms. But like any elite team, there's only a few spots on the roster. To learn more, visit sportsbusinessradio.com for a link to the center's website. The Warsaw Sports Marketing Center. Passion, integrity, and leadership in sports business education. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. It's time for this week's Sports Business Radio headline sponsored by the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon. Visit warsawcenter.com for more information. Headline number one, the British Open. The first major of the year without Tiger Woods. ABC earned a 3.5 for the final round coverage, and the ratings overall were down 14% from last year. Now, Nathan, Greg Norman could have become the oldest Open champion ever at age 53, and really the golf gods gave ABC a gift because if Norman wasn't in the mix going into the to that final round, probably not nearly as many people would have tuned in. So many of the big names, Phil Mickelson, Vijay Singh, Ernie Els, Sergio Garcia, all of them off of the leaderboard, not in contention. Podrick Harrington wins his second Open in a row, but uh, down 14%. I predicted on last week's show it would be down at least by double digits. And I was right. Wow, congratulations on being right. You know, Greg, can you imagine how much more it would have been down had Norman not been in the mix? The one thing that surprised me from a sports business angle is as I'm watching, you know, Greg Norman is famous for his shark clothing line. And you would have thought with all that exposure, you would have seen the shark all over his gear and the, the straw hat that he normally wears. It was not present at all. I had to squint at the TV just to see the little shark figure on his hat. And if I'm Greg Norman... I've got sharks all over my clothing because this is the last really good exposure that I imagine that he's going to get. Now, the other big news with the British Open is that they are about to become an all-cable affair. ESPN is poised to pick up the rights for the entire tournament starting in 2010, ending ABC's 50-year association with the event. Now, ABC and ESPN are sister companies, and if you tune into a sporting event on ABC, it says ESPN or on ESPN on ABC. So, you know, college football, golf, it's already branded in that way, but this would take it solely to cable. You wouldn't be watching it on ABC anymore. Kind of an interesting move, but you know, once again, Nathan, what this does is it just shows that there's really not a huge difference between cable and network TV anymore. Everyone has cable now, so uh, whether you have a, a dish or direct TV or cable TV, you have access to ESPN. Well, yeah, and, and think about Monday Night Football and how Monday Night Football went to ESPN. Everybody was up in arms about that, but at the end of the day, like you said, everybody already has cable, so nobody's going to be missing Monday Night Football, and certainly there's not going to be a whole lot of people missing the British Open that really want to watch it. My last note on this, my guess is that the PGA Championship is going to get even worse ratings than the British Open. British Open, you know, some people like Wimbledon. They like to get up early and, and watch the British Open. It's got a little bit of a mystique to it. The PGA Championship has always been, in my opinion, uh, the Australian Open of golf. Yeah, I mean, it, it's the least compelling of the four. And I just think that the ratings for the the PGA Championship are going to be probably even worse unless you got, you know, some of the big names. Again, uh, Phil Mickelson and Ernie Els, Sergio Garcia onto the leaderboard on the final day, and it was a compelling final round. I don't think people are going to watch the PGA Championship. Our next headline, two former classmates of disgraced referee Tim Donaghy 
will spend over a year in prison for their roles in the betting scandal that rocked the NBA. James Batista, who's a professional gambler, was sentenced in New York to 15 months in prison for making bets based on inside tips. Thomas Martino got a one-year sentence for paying the referee thousands of dollars for the tips. Both defendants apologized in court on Thursday. The three men attended high school together in Springfield, Pennsylvania. Donaghy, who's a resident of Bradenton, Florida, will be sentenced on July 29th. He pleaded guilty last year to charges. He conspired to engage in wire fraud and transmitted betting information through interstate commerce. Nathan, as we discussed on last week's show, this Tim Donaghy situation just won't go away, and it's a nightmare for David Stern and the NBA. And David Stern better hope that Donaghy is the rogue referee that he's been calling him because if we find out that any of the referees were involved in this scheme, oh boy, it is going to be disaster for the NBA. Well, it can't get over soon enough. You know, the NBA season is right around the corner again, only a couple months away. And like you said, if there's anybody else involved in this, we can expect this to go on for at least another NBA season if not more than that, and so it's unfortunate for the NBA. Our next headline, the Brett Favre saga continues, and there could be tampering charges. Has Brett Favre spoken with assistant coaches for the Minnesota Vikings? The Green Bay Packers issued Favre a cell phone, and they have determined that Favre placed calls to the Packers assistant coaches on that cell phone. He's friends with those coaches from when they were with the Green Bay Packers, but Nathan, this is just another level of controversy to this. And then Packers president and CEO Mark Murphy acknowledged Thursday that Brett Favre's jersey retirement ceremony might have to be postponed. Well, yeah, if he comes back with the Packers, you can't really retire his jersey. And if he's playing for another team, you can't retire his jersey. So, yeah, until this is all over and sorted out one way or another, seems like uh, you've got to postpone a lot of things. And it seems like this week... The Packers, for the first time, were taking some trade offers for Brett Favre, so he could be moving to another team. Well, this is unfortunate for both parties, both the Packers and Brett Favre. I hate to see any sort of black guy go against Brett Favre because he's a legend, he's an icon, and he's one of the classy guys left in the NFL. But on the same note, I can't picture Brett Favre playing for a different team, whether it be the Vikings or anybody else for that matter. It's kind of like when Michael Jordan came back and played for the Wizards. Brett Favre is the Packers, and I respect Rodgers for being the backup guy for so long. He's obviously ready to play ball, but if Brett Favre is going to come back, he's the guy that fans are going to come and want to see. He's the guy that's going to drive ratings for the Packers, and obviously everybody in Green Bay already has a season ticket, so it's not about whether or not every game is going to be sold out, but if you're tuning in to watch football and the Packers are on TV and Favre isn't on that field, you might be changing the channel. Well, and the ironic thing is if you're going to trade either Favre or Aaron Rodgers, you're going to get more for Aaron Rodgers than you are for Brett Favre. Favre is at the end of his career. Uh, if he does come back, you'd think he's probably got another season or two tops. And Aaron Rodgers is a young guy, and I'm sure uh, there are several teams out there that would you know, give you a first or a second round pick for Aaron Rodgers. So, you know, what do the Packers do here? Do they bring Favre back? Do they appease their fan base? Do they let this legend finish out his career in a Packers uniform? And do they trade Aaron Rodgers? And they also have Brian Brom, who they drafted in the second round out of Louisville. So they had kind of been planning for the future with two young quarterbacks. Now Favre is back in the mix. I think they need mediation here. They need Roger Goodell. They need 
Mike Holmgren from the Seahawks, who knows Favre and knows the Packers organization. They need someone to step in here and figure this out. Or they just trade him. They take what they can get for him, and they deal with the backlash that they're going to get from doing that. Let's talk about the far factor in terms of jersey sales. And if he goes somewhere else, we've seen this with Kobe. We've seen it with people that go to other teams or change numbers. The NFL stands to make quite a bit of money in jersey sales if Favre goes to another team because everybody's going to want the new Favre jersey. Just like if he goes to another team, everybody from that team, whether it's Atlanta, whether it's Minnesota, are going to come to the stadium to watch Brett Favre play. So there's a lot of money to be had here, not just from the Packers, but the NFL and whether team he may or may not go to. Well, and I believe that Brett Favre is slated to be on the cover of EA Sports' NFL game. So if he's... You know, they did this when they thought he was going to be retired. And now if they have to put him in a different uniform, you've got to make plans for that as well. Our last headline of the week, this could be very interesting. A Virginia company claims to have a urine-based test for HGH, human growth hormone, that could be used to drug test athletes two weeks after its use rather than 48 hours or less. The company Ceres Nanosciences says the test eliminates the need for blood tests to detect HGH, Players Association uh, have pushed back on blood tests. So basically, um, a urine test instead of a blood test that could detect HGH, this could be a big breakthrough for you know all the leagues that are trying to detect uh, human growth hormone. Well, here's the thing, Brian, is that someone, some scientist out there has already developed the next great thing that's not detectable. So even if they've caught on to HGH, There's another better thing out there that we're going to be talking about one year from right now. But it is good to see the good guys trying to develop tests to at least, uh, you know, maybe lessen the gap between them and the bad guys. I do agree with you that there are some rogue scientists out there that are always a few steps ahead of the good guys determining, you know, EPO or oxygen blood boosters or, you know, whatever. All the stuff that we see in Europe with the Tour de France and And as we discussed last week, how many of those guys have been busted? All right, coming up in our next segment, we're going to talk about the Chicago Cubs. Yeah, Cubs. And the sale of the Cubs. The Cubs are going to be sold. There were 20 groups at the beginning of this. Then it was narrowed to 10. Now we could be down to our final three. We're going to tell you who those three groups are, and we're going to give you our odds on who may be the next owner of the Cubs. And will they own Wrigley Field as well? We'll even throw in a tidbit about your favorite Cubs fan of all time, Steve Bartman. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. My guest is Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Let's go back to the year 2000, the year before you bought the Mavericks. They were 40 and 42. Fan interest was pretty lukewarm. When you bought this team, what did you see in this team? What was the potential that you saw to get them to where they are today? Probably none. Brian Berger goes one-on-one with the biggest names. My guest is Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. I think the reason why we have a BCS-type system in Division 1A and elsewhere we have playoffs is that the schools in Division 1A feel that the regular season is the most important aspect of football. Read the Sports Business blog and listen to SBR On Demand at sportsbusinessradio.com. See, I think that's the big thing. Sports Business Radio, Saturday. <laughs> Or online at sportsbusinessradio.com. This 
is Sports Business Radio. We are back, and we're going to talk some Chicago Cubs in this segment. Uh, both Nathan and I are longtime Cubby fans, and the Cubs are for sale, and it's no secret that they're for sale. Uh, Sam Zell is looking to help pay off about $8.2 billion in debt, and he brought the Tribune Company, and the Tribune Company has owned the Cubs for a long, long time now. And uh, if you're selling off assets, I mean, look, newspapers are not making any money right now. If anything, they're laying people off, and it's a bad business to be in. And part of shedding some of these costs is by selling the Chicago Cubs and selling Wrigley Field. And Zell thinks he can get over a billion dollars for the Cubs and for Wrigley Field. And the Cubs, if you're looking at baseball teams, you have to put them in the iconic class of the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Dodgers. And they're going to fetch a lot of money. And there has not been any lack of interest in people who have wanted to purchase the Cubs. So what this process has entailed to date is there were initially about 20 groups that were interested in having conversations about buying the Cubs. Then it got narrowed to 10. Well, this week, it was narrowed to three. And the Tribune Company is inviting at least three potential buyers who each submitted bids for the Chicago Cubs and Wrigley Field near or above $1 billion to participate in a second round of proposals, this according to a person involved in the process. Several bidders offering between $700 million and $900 million for all the properties have been excluded from the second round, according to this person who spoke on the condition of anonymity because of non-disclosure agreements governing all talks about the bids. you got to love when those people who sign non-disclosure agreements yeah. still talk to the media somehow. A Tribune spokeswoman said the baseball team would not have any comment on the status of the sale, which also includes the team's minority stake in a Chicago regional TV network, and it's a sports network. Included in the second round are internet billionaire and Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban. Nathan and I want him to win. The Ricketts family, which founded the brokerage firm that is now now TD Ameritrade Holding Corporation and a group led by Sports Acquisition Holding Corporation that includes former baseball home run king Hank Aaron and Republican Congressman Jack Kemp. The last group is believed to be teaming with another bidder who submitted an offer in the initial round. All three of the reported potential buyers have refused comment publicly. Now, Comcast Sportsnet has learned that Cuban is the highest bidder to buy the Cubs at $1.3 billion. The most surprising thing about this, Nathan, is that John Canning Jr., the chairman of the private equity firm Madison Dearborn Partners, uh, he's really been treated as the front runner. He is a good friend of Bud Selig. A lot of people just thought it was a foregone conclusion that Canning Jr. was going to be the next owner of the Cubs, and we were all just going through this uh, process to make it look like they were taking it serious and that Canning Jr. was going to be the appointed person. The word on the street to date has been that Cuban is too uh, too big of a rebel, too big of an outlaw. He thinks too much outside the box for the other owners in Major League Baseball and that most of those owners wouldn't welcome Cuban into their fraternity. Well, so far, it looks like Cuban's making a good impression. If you take a poll, which several of the newspapers in Chicago have done, the people's choice is Mark Cuban. 
So now it's going to be interesting. Cuban has offered the most amount of money, $1.3 billion. He's in this final three. John Canning Jr. looks like he's not going to be uh, in consideration unless his friend, Major League Baseball Commissioner Bud Selig, somehow forces him in there somehow. This is going to be interesting to see how this plays out. Well, yeah, I mean, seriously, if you're a Major League Baseball owner, you want Mark Cuban in your league, especially right now. He does so much for sports he's involved in. Look at what he does for the Dallas Mavericks. Just because he's not some staunch guy sitting up in a front office smoking a cigar, he's going to be in the dugout. He's going to be wearing the Cubs jersey. He's going to make baseball entertaining. And there's, there needs to be more owners like that in sports. And that's why I want Mark Cuban so bad. He's a perfect fit for the Cubs. I mean, he's a bleacher creature himself. I could see Mark Cuban out in the bleachers drinking old style. That's what baseball needs right now. Baseball needs some sort of positive spin and frankly, the Cubs need to win a world championship. they got a great team this year, but Mark Cuban not only does stuff off the field or off the court, but he's going to help the team on the field, and that's exactly what the Cubs need right now. Well, and you look at what Cuban has done with the Mavericks. When he bought the Dallas Mavericks, they were one of the worst teams in the NBA. And when we had Mr. Cuban on the show two years ago, he talked about, you know, I asked him, have you ever thought about owning another sports team, or are you pretty uh, comfortable with just owning the Mavericks. And he said if there was ever the opportunity to own an iconic sports team like the Chicago Cubs, he would be interested. Well, he's putting $1.3 billion up. And let's not forget, Mark Cuban is very wealthy, but he's not Paul Allen. He's not Bill Gates. He's not Phil Knight. You know, his net worth overall is probably worth 5 or $6 billion. So for him to put up $1.3, I don't know if that's all his own money, if he's got investors, not sure what the deal is. That's a lot of money. The other thing you have to ask yourself is anytime you invest in a sports franchise, usually your operating expenses, you're trying to break even on a year-to-year basis, and where you make your money is with the value of the team. If Cuban decided at some point in the next 10 years to sell the Cubs, is he going to get a healthy return on his investment if he invests $1.3 billion? Now, the all-time record sale for a sports franchise, Major League Baseball, $660 million, uh, the Boston Red Sox. And, you know, to pay $1.3 billion, you're paying essentially double what the Red Sox sold for, and they just sold, what, five years ago. Well, yeah, and you're talking about a return on investment. The Tribune paid $20.5 million for the team in 1981, and now Cuban is offering $1.3 billion. You have to assume that 5, 10, 20 years down the road when Cuban may decide to sell the Cubs, it's going to be worth at least twice that amount. And the Cubs franchise is one of those franchises where I believe you really can't lose money in the end. It's such an iconic franchise. People will always go to Cubs games because of that, and I think it's, an, it's a win-win situation for Cuban or anybody that owns the team. Well, here's what I would do if I was Mark Cuban or any of these final three bidders. I would absolutely not buy the Cubs unless they come with Wrigley Field. If I've got to be a renter and I don't get Wrigley Field in the deal and I'm paying over a billion dollars, Forget about it. Uh, the other thing is, is Wrigley Field is such a great venue. And much like uh, they've done with Fenway Park in Boston, um, you know, they use that facility for concerts and they use it for other events. I think Wrigley Field could be used for the same. But if you don't own the field, then you're not going to reap the rewards of having those events at your venue. Well, and we've talked about Wrigley possibly hosting an NHL game, all sorts of events like that that draw fans in, unique events. And you know Cuban's going to be involved 
with some unique events in addition to concerts. We just talked to Ryan Sandberg a couple weeks ago on this show, and they did a pretty cool thing at Wrigley with the minor league baseball team coming out. There's all sorts of potential at a field like Wrigley, and you're absolutely right. Mark Cuban has got to own Wrigley Field and own the Cubs, or else it's a, it's a no-win situation. Now, the other thing with Mark Cuban is I would almost bet you money that if Mark Cuban buys the Cubs and pays $1.3 billion or more, you're going to see him sell the Dallas Mavericks because he's going to use some of the money to put towards this purchase. And I think the Cubs are a team that will take so much passion and energy from him that he'll sell the Dallas Mavericks. Now, that's a whole other story. If the Dallas Mavericks become available, you know, NBA franchises, there aren't many of them. They're very valuable. And I would think in Dallas, especially after what Cuban has done to turn that franchise around, that could be a very attractive purchase for someone. They're not going to get a billion dollars for uh, the Mavericks, but you know I think they could get four hundred million, which would be a nice uh, chunk of change. See, and I disagree with you. I do not think that the Dallas Mavericks, even if Cuban gets the Cubs, will be sold. I think Cuban is an emotional guy. He gets emotionally involved with his teams. His heart and soul is. But with I the think Mavericks. he's sick of the NBA politics. I really do. I think he's been fined more than any other owner in the last five or six years. I think if he got to be a Major League Baseball owner, especially the Cubs, I think the Dallas Mavericks, again, I think think he's going to have a better relationship with Bud Selig than David Stern. Bud Selig's not nearly as confrontational as David Stern. Plus, in baseball, you never see owners really uh, arguing balls and strikes like you do. Well, okay, but I don't think he would be nearly as controversial or as outspoken with Major League Baseball than he would on the NBA stage. Nathan. Steve Bartman, the most famous Cubs fan of all time, made news this week. Uh, Tell us how. Well, yeah, he refused yet another offer, and there's been many over the last five years, to cash in on the moment he became, like you said, the most famous Chicago Cubs fan in history. His friend said that Bartman would not accept an offer for $25,000. For the money, all Bartman has to do, and I would have done this, I guess, is to attend the National Sports Collectors Convention in Rosemont and autograph a photograph of himself tipping a foul ball that we all know was going into Moises Alou's hand to make that final out. And so Bartman, of course, is still in hiding, not accepting $25,000. And on a personal side note, I think that Bartman should be forgiven, and none of the diehard Chicago Cubs fans, he can't even go back in Chicago. I mean, this has gotten so ridiculous. Well, didn't someone offer to, like, take that ball and, like, blow it up and and kind of exercise the demons? They blew it up. Okay, so, I mean... Bartman should be forgiven at this point. He should, I mean, he's like a diehard there, But there fan. are some fans that would like to see Bartman blown up. Well, that's why he's not going to this convention because, <laughs> you know, he's probably afraid that someone's going to kill him. He probably needs security. Yeah, I mean, that's the sad thing about sports is that people are so fanatical. Especially with the Cubs. I mean, uh, yeah. But, you know, I don't know. I mean, look, it looks like he screwed up the Cubs' chance to get into the World Series, but the Cubs are doing great this year. The monkey will be off of Bartman's back if somehow the Cubs can continue to play like they're playing, get into the playoffs, and win the first uh, World Series in over 100 years, right? We'll see Bartman back at a game, I hope. Well, and this would be interesting, too. Last note on this, if they do win the World Series, does that increase the price of the team for Mark Cuban or any of these other final three people? Hopefully, hopefully, before the end of this year, we're going to have a very good idea as to who the next owner of the Chicago Cubs will be. Okay, in our next segment, we're going to talk about the upcoming Summer Olympics in Beijing. 
I spent a few weeks there last September. Seems like just yesterday. And, uh, boy, so much going on on the athletic field or court and also off the field of competition. We're going to talk about that more in our next segment. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. Hi, this is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. When I'm looking for a place to have dinner with family, friends, or business associates, there's only one restaurant on my list. Morton's The Steakhouse, the best steak anywhere. In its 28th year in business, Morton serves only the finest quality foods, featuring USDA prime-age beef, fresh seafood, hand-picked produce, and decadent desserts prepared to perfection. Not to mention the award-winning wine list. When my destination is Morton's, the best is always on the menu. And they treat me like a VIP during every visit, whether in the dining room or the private boardrooms. With almost 75 restaurants conveniently located around the world, Morton's is the gold standard when it comes to steakhouses. To find the Morton's nearest you or to make a reservation, go online to mortons.com. Morton's, the best steak anywhere and the official steakhouse of Sports Business Radio. Back to Sports Business Radio with Brian Berger. During this segment, we're going to talk about the upcoming Summer Olympics in Beijing, 8-8 of 2008. So many different layers of stories, Nathan, to the Olympics, whether it's the TV coverage, to the sponsors, to the political protest, to the athletes themselves. We'll try and cover some of that here in the next few minutes uh, on the show this week. I was in China last September, so... It was really interesting for me to see firsthand just how emerging of an economy they have, kind of what the the soil is like over there, how bad the pollution is, what the people are like, how receptive they are to having these games. And uh, it, it gave me a, a firsthand knowledge that, uh, you know, I probably would lack otherwise if we were just talking about it on the show. So it, it's good from that standpoint. Let's start by talking about TV coverage, NBC has paid a lot of money to uh, land the rights to these games, but it looks to be a good investment. They're almost sold out of their inventory, both online and on TV. They're going to probably make profit over a billion dollars from selling out sponsorships on TV and online. And this week, news comes that Barack Obama is going to spend $5 million to purchase advertising during the Olympic Games. That's a lot of money, but there's a lot of eyeballs that are going to be watching the Olympics. So could his uh, $5 million purchase go a long way in actually determining who our next president is? Well, that seems really cheap to me, given the fact that we talk about Super Bowl ads going for, you know, what were they, $2 million? $2.7 million 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 this year. And there's a lot of potential with the uh, Olympic Games going on. And you have to look back a couple years back to 92 and 94 in Lillehammer when CBS had the Games. They could not have foreseen what the Olympics and the viewership would evolve to. We talk now about not only does NBC have four different TV channels covering the Olympic Games, but now you have the Internet elements to the Olympic Games. And back in 92-94... The internet was still just a startup thing, and so NBC has got to be happy about 
how technology has evolved and the investment that they made back when they initially grabbed the Olympics in 94 to have it for 1996. So it's going to be an interesting way to watch the Olympic Games. Now, NBC is going to have a crew of 2,900 people that they're deploying to cover these games. But Nathan, not all of them are going to be calling the action from Beijing. NBC plans to broadcast at least 10 sports during the Beijing Games from its headquarters in New York, meaning more than two dozen play-by-play broadcasters and analysts will not call the events live from China. This according to the Chicago Tribune this week. Some of these events include archery, badminton, baseball, equestrian, fencing, handball, shooting, soccer, softball, and tennis. Even some basketball events will be called by announcers and analysts in New York. They won't be in China. This part of NBC's strategy to cut their costs. Well, my mom happens to be one of the people going over to Beijing. She works on gymnastics, which is always one of the most popular sports. But again, we're talking about technology. The fact that NBC can cover you know, a large amount of these games from their headquarters in New York it's, it cuts back on so much cost. I mean, it is so expensive to house and feed and, and basically take care of these production crews. Yeah, so that'll be interesting. I mean, the NBC has also said that, you know, they want to make sure their broadcasters don't use the words here or live from China or anything like that. They want to make sure that people know watching, look, they're not actually there in China. They are calling the events from the New York studios. Uh, so that will be interesting to see how that works. Now, a few other things on the Olympic front. Uh, that developed this week. Uh, Beijing is going to set up specifically designated protest zones in three public parks during the Olympics. This according to the Washington Post this week. They're going to be called protest pens. And, you know, if you look at all the groups, the international advocacy groups on issues like Tibet, Darfur, uh, human rights, you know, we've seen so many of the facilities that have been built in China, where people have died. You know, I saw firsthand people operating heavy machinery in China on some of these construction projects with flashlights. There's no unions over there, so none of the workers are protected. Some of them are paid as little as 50 cents an hour for building some of the Olympic venues. There's going to be a lot of protesters over there. I've been saying this for the last year since I came back. I think the biggest story of these Olympics aren't going to be the athletic competitions. I think it's going to be the protests and everything else. Will people stick in these protest pens? Because, you know, here's the thing is these protest pens are going to be set up, but they've got to if anyone does anything to embarrass the motherland, the the integrity of China, you know, there's going to be a problem. And people have to uh, go through this process to be admitted into the protest pen. They've got to sign up days in advance. They can't just show up there with a sign and say, I'm protesting. They've got to have some written permission from the Chinese government to even be in the protest pen. And I just don't think the protesters are going to be that civilized to go, "Okay, I'm going to play by all these rules. So once that happens, how is the Chinese government? And let's call it like it is. This is the country that brought us the Tiananmen Square massacre when students were protesting against the government. How are they going to respond to protesters who haven't followed the proper protocol? That will be 
Very interesting. These protest pens, like you said, are the most ridiculous things in the world. To sign up to be in a protest pen is so foolish because anybody that's protesting anything in the world is doing it against the will of whatever they're protesting. So I imagine, I actually think there's going to be more backlash because of the protest pens than there would be if they didn't have them at all. People are going to be more likely to run and do crazier things aside from the pen. So I think you're right. The biggest story is going to be the protesting. And I also think that the biggest story is going to be how many people tune in. One way of protesting is not watching the games and not supporting the fact that they're over there. So it's I kind of think that maybe we might see a decline in some of the ratings as a result of people saying, you know what, I'm not going to support what's going on over there. I'm not going to tune into this games. Now, President Bush is going to be going over there. He's scheduled to go over to China for the opening ceremonies. And word comes this week that one of the big reasons he's going over there, not only to support the American Olympians who are going to be there, but he's also going to be meeting with IOC officials trying to make a big push for Chicago to land the 2016 games. They have submitted bids, and they're amongst the finalists for that. Many people think they're a long shot, but President Bush is going to try and lend his power to help secure the 2016 bid for Chicago. Now, another thing that's interesting is when I went over to China, I brought my daughter back a Fuwa. And you go, what in the heck is a Fuwa? Well, the Fuwa are a group of characters that are the Beijing Games mascots. And in China right now, they're trying to market the you-know-what out of these Fuwa. And it includes animated television shows. There's T-shirts. There's trinkets. Uh... 6,300 Olympic shops and sales counters around the country are selling FUWA and Olympic gear. And it's interesting because most of the Chinese people, and usually they like to have a consensus amongst the Chinese people, well, I guess 40% of the people in China, they've taken polls, don't approve of the FUWA. And not only do they not approve of the FUWA, but some people have taken to calling them Wuwa and Wuwa is Chinese for witch dolls. And there's an online rumor that is associating each one of the characters with a recent Chinese national disaster. And, you know, there's a lot of taboo things going on over in China. So, you know, you spread these rumors online and it hurts sales. But, you know, there's so many people over in China, you would think, and all the people that are coming over are going to want to take a piece of the Olympics back with them. So, but it's just an interesting story, I thought, when I saw that this week. Has there been an Olympics that you can remember where the character that they chose is not just some ridiculous character? I mean, can they ever have anything normal? I mean, even in Atlanta, I can't even remember what the thing was, but my mom brought back a couple of those silly dolls. I mean, these things, are these in that big a demand that people are going to be taking polls and ticked off that the FUA is a certain way? I mean, this is silly. Well, it is silly, but it's a huge, huge story over there. And Not again, to insult the fact that you brought one back for your daughter. I'm just saying that, you know, they're stuffed animal dolls. I'd rather have a T-shirt or something to commemorate the actual games than some well, cartoon character. Well, but they're character. on T-shirts, and they're on sweatshirts, and they're on hats, and, and they are the you know, official mascots of the Beijing Olympics. So if you don't like them, you don't care if it's a stuffed animal or if it's a a T-shirt or hat or whatever. And by the way, I visited several of the official Olympic merchandise stores. And let's just say that, uh, you know how there's some shirts that are really well made and there's others that are like toilet paper and you wash it once and it disintegrates? That's kind of the uh, the disintegrating merchandise, that's what I would call this Olympic merchandise. It probably cost them nothing to make. They're, you know, 
upticking 75% on the profit. And, uh, you know, I wasn't I, over there with you, Brian, but you brought back one of those shirts for me. And I got to say, I think it's a nice quality. I, I well, I got you one of the expensive ones. I oh. didn't get you like the typical T-shirt. You didn't go slumming for me. I no, I didn't go that. slumming for you. And I brought Bobby Corser, our producer, back something as well. And I didn't go slumming for him either. But typically, if you walk through the store like I did, you know, I thought most of the merchandise was A, cheesy, and B, just not that well made. So when you add up that with the fact that some of the people don't like the fuwa, then you know, who knows? Maybe merchandise sales are not going to be as good as they've been for other Olympics. But I frankly think they'll be great because there's more people in China than just about any country that's ever hosted the Olympics. Now, here's another note on this. Iraq will not be able to participate in the Olympics because it disbanded the country's Olympic Committee in May. The ILC had set a deadline for the committee to be reinstated, but the government has refused to back down. At least seven Iraqi athletes had qualified for the Games. That's a disappointment because, obviously, you know, the United States and other countries are trying to help rebuild Iraq. They had seven athletes that were looking forward to participating, but because they didn't reestablish this uh, committee, now they are going to be banned from participating in the Olympics next month. Well, that's unfortunate. For I mean, We've seen Olympic athletes, American Olympic athletes in the past, protest the Olympics and choose not to go. These are athletes that qualified, they've worked hard, they've trained their entire career, and it's not by choice that they're unable to go. Their government has chosen for them, and that's a disappointment because they've earned the right to compete in the Olympic Games. All right, our last topic here during this segment. This is something I can speak to you very, very well. The pollution in China. It is the worst of any city that I've ever visited. Well, you know, I said last year there was no way in the world they were going to be able to make that air clean by the time the Olympics rolled around. Well, they are making the best efforts they can. I still don't think it's going to be good enough. What they started doing this week, this past Monday, is they're trying to pull 3.2 million cars off the road in Beijing. And basically what they're doing is... You're allowed to drive your car every other day. So they're going by license plate numbers. If you have an odd-numbered license plate number, you get to drive on a certain day. If you have an even license plate number, you get to drive on a certain day. But you can only drive a private car that you own every other day. And then trucks producing high emissions have been blocked from entering Beijing since July 1st. The other thing they've done is they've painted the highways with the Olympic rings. So there's like an Olympic traffic lane, much like you see with, uh, you know, in other major cities, the carpool lane. Well, this is the Olympic traffic lane. So unless you're an official Olympic uh, vehicle, you're not allowed to drive in that lane. And I can tell you, I mean, my story from the Olympics last year is that I was on a bus with Yao Ming, Steve Nash, Carmelo Anthony, uh, Baron Davis, several top NBA players. And Yao Ming is one of the most recognizable people in all of China. The guy's seven foot six. We were on a bus trying to get to this uh, exhibition basketball game, and we had a police escort, and we made no dent in the traffic. That's how bad the traffic is. Let me try and paint a picture for you. I was just in L.A. this week. Take the traffic in L.A., New York, or Chicago, and times it by about 10. I'm not joking. And that's what you get with you have when you have Beijing traffic. So good luck removing 3.2 million cars from the road over the next month or so. But the pollution and the traffic, 
that will be another one of the top stories for the Olympics next month. We will see how this all turns out, and we will be covering the Olympics very, very closely, not just the sports business aspects, but the news aspects of the Olympics, things like pollution, things like political protests. We'll be covering it closely. We'll be talking to people who are on the ground in Beijing over the next month and a half, two months here on Sports Business Radio. All right, we've got one more segment of Sports Business Radio coming up. We'll be right back. Stick around. This is Brian Berger, host of Sports Business Radio. We live in an age where everything is on the record. What we say anywhere, whether it's in an elevator, in an email, or during a conversation with a reporter, is now being broadcast instantaneously on YouTube, in a blog, or through the mass media. It's easier than ever to spot someone who has been traditionally media trained and is just giving you that same old boring PR speak. I want to help you navigate the tricky media landscape. When I'm not hosting Sports Business Radio, I team with former Nike PR director Lee Weinstein to form Evergreen Media Training. Evergreen Media Training assists individuals and groups by offering unique preparation and training catered to your specific needs. From explaining today's media environment to providing you with post-training, monitoring, and feedback, we'll guide you every step of the way. With nearly 40 years of combined experience working with some of the biggest names in the sports industry, we'll help you communicate your messages honestly, thoughtfully, and from the heart. For an overview and a list of services, visit evergreenmediatraining.com or email me at brian at sportsbusinessradio.com. The website is sportsbusinessradio.com. Well, Atlanta Hawks restricted free agent forward Josh Childress this week shocked the NBA world. He signed a three-year, $32.5 million deal with a Greek team rather than accept a deal from the Atlanta Hawks. Now, the Hawks had offered Childress a five-year, $33 million contract, but after taxes... Childress is going to make about 2 to $3 million more playing in Greece than he will for the Atlanta Hawks. And I think he was offended by the way the Hawks conducted business, but he was also pretty interested in that 2 to $3 million more a year after taxes. This will be interesting, Nathan, to see. Does this open the door for some, te- for some players to actually consider going and playing in Europe or in foreign countries if they don't get the deal they want from their NBA team. Well, well check it out. Now he's going to be a big fish in a little pond. He's going to be a superstar over there, which he wasn't in the NBA here. And you have to wonder if David Stern is actually excited about this, like you said, because now it's the globalization of NBA but basketball. But it's not for his league, so I don't think he's very excited about it. You know it. what? But it's bringing attention to professional basketball overseas with American players, and I think that that benefits the NBA greatly well and Brandon Jennings the player who was going to go to the U of A bypassed that he's a high school player went straight to Europe that's another example we'll keep our eyes on that story because it's developing a lot of thank yous on our show this week our show staff Nathan Roach Bobby Corser Josh Blank Darren Peck Ron Barr James Harris and Doug Zanger our sponsors Morton's the Steakhouse the Warsaw Sports Marketing Center at the University of Oregon ProTrade.com and Evergreen Media Training a podcast reminder, you can catch our show on demand via podcast every week. Just go to sportsbusinessradio.com. I'm Brian Berger for Nathan Roach. Enjoy your week, and we'll talk to you next week. 
Sports Business Radio talks to the people who call the shots in the world of sports. Robert Sarver, the owner of the Phoenix Suns. When people come to a Suns game, what kind of an experience do you want it to be for them? We want them to be entertained from the time they walk in to the time they leave. The co-owner of the Sacramento Kings, Gavin Maloof. Gavin, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, Brian. How are you? Dr. Miles Brand, the president of the NCAA. Sports Business Radio. Saturday. That's why you're a smart business person. <laughs> or at sportsbusinessradio.com.